0: Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you on this rainy, rainy day. If those of you are somewhere online with us where it's sunny, we are jealous. Um, glad that you all have made it out in this day so that we can continue our look at Exodus. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we start, a reminder that we've got all the old lessons, stmichael.org rbs. And I've had a few questions about finding the podcast online, and if you go to our website, stmichael.org slash rbs, there's a link that'll take you right to the podcast, or you're very welcome if you listen to podcasts in any app, anywhere, computer, your phone, whatever, if you search for Rector's Bible Study, that is technically what you need to search for in order to find the podcast, and then you can listen at your leisure wherever you are. One other thing is that today, we are teeing up the final plague. So in a sense, in chapter 11, it's the warning of the final plague. And so we're not going to quite get to the Passover and the plague yet, but we're going to talk about how we got to this place, what Moses is doing with Pharaoh, the way that Pharaoh's story is being told. And we almost have a little bit of a pause before we get to this 10th plague. And so I want to encourage you to think about any questions that you may have had over the course of these last couple months before we get into this 10th and final plague when Israel is finally released from Egypt. And so kind of let those come to the surface. Those of you online, make sure you ask them in the comment fields, um, because we do have a little bit of time if we'd like to spend today doing a bit more Q&A than normal. Lastly, just as an aside, this coming weekend, we will be celebrating All Saints and All Souls here at St. Michael. And so I hope you will come either to the All Saints services on Sunday morning. All of our services will be celebrating All Saints. And in the past, my assumption is that um, St. Michael—not my assumption—St. Michael has done All Saints on its own without All Souls— And historically, that's fine to do because you kind of put everything together and you remember everybody who has died. But what I've done is I've broken the two apart so that all saints in the morning is really the celebration and the festival that it's meant to be, so that all souls in the evening can be that more solemn, candlelit, focus on remembering our loved ones who have died particularly in the last 12 months, but really anytime. And so you're invited to do both. That festival in the morning where we celebrate the saints that have come before us and that really solemn, beautiful, choral even song service that's going to be at 5 30 in the church on sunday night where we will light candles and we will read the necrology everyone within our community and connected to our community here at saint michael who have died in the last 12 months it's a beautiful service and it's a wonderful balance to the day with that festival in the morning and that solemnity at night and so i invite you to do that and both will be live streamed and so if you can't be here physically then join us online as well All right, let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the beauty of the rain that washes the earth and cleanses us. May we be opened to the working of your Spirit, that as we study your word, the work you have done through faithful people over time, that we can take our place in that race that we can receive the gifts of those who have come before us and carry that work on in our lifetimes as we pass them to others in the future. May we be transformed in that work, that we can be representative of your love to all those we meet. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have three parts of our lesson today. The first is going to be that recap, how we got here. The second is going to be a look at chapter 11 very specifically, which is the warning of that final plague. And the third section is going to be the idea of acknowledging God, of acknowledging Yahweh, and in a sense, how Pharaoh represents some of the resistance that we all share about acknowledging God. And so let's do first how we got here. So a reminder and a recap that we began Exodus at a moment in time when the Israelites had spent 400 years in Egypt. They had come to Egypt because of the famine. They essentially stayed because life was pretty good. Joseph at the beginning gave them a great place of honor. But of course, over the generations, that slippery slope slid away. And by the time we get to the beginning of Exodus, when there is a Pharaoh who arises in Egypt who did not know Joseph, remember that line? we find that the Israelites are in captivity. They are, in a sense, stuck. They cannot get away. They have been too long away from their home. I mean, think about 400 years, right? America is not that old. And so it's a long time that they have been in Egypt. It has become their home. And so even though we might read that story as something that seems relatively simple, like, well, you got to Egypt, just leave and go somewhere else. Not quite that easy, for multiple reasons. A, Egypt was strong, they held on to them, but even B, the Israelites, in a very real sense, didn't necessarily want to leave. We know the whole story, and so we can see, with the clarity of hindsight, that the Israelites were made a promise, and that God wanted to fulfill that promise, and so it seems kind of obvious, well, go do it, because God said go do it. However, Israel represents one of the evils of captivity, which is that those who are captive often feel secure in their captivity. Even though it's not a good situation, even though it might be even abusive, there is a level of knowing, of knowledge, of security, that at least you get food, at least you have a house, at least you will stay alive. And if you think about walking out into the desert, those simple things are not a guarantee. And so when Moses comes on the scene, the Israelites are really quite stuck. Moses then, through a whole series of events, killing an Egyptian, running away, getting married and having a family, talking to a burning bush, all of those things happen that bring Moses back to Egypt. When Moses comes to Pharaoh's court, Moses delivers the very simple message. God says, let my people go. But Yahweh is not the God that Pharaoh knows. And, in fact, Pharaoh believes he, in a sense, is God on earth. And so, who is your God? I do not know your God. Remember that at the very beginning when Moses shows up in his court. One plague after another, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And we discussed before that heart in the ancient world is a bit more like gut or our resolve. So when Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it's really Pharaoh's resolve is hardened. Pharaoh does not want Yahweh to win. And so plague after plague after plague, even when his own magicians, even when his own people begin to rally against Pharaoh, Pharaoh resists because he has gotten into a win-lose kind of mindset. Either he wins or he loses, and he does not want to lose. And so he resists Moses over and over and over again. This ninth plague that we discussed last week is that plague of darkness, and it was a relatively simple plague. Light went away from the sky. Today, in chapter 11, we see an introduction to the tenth and final plague, and I want us to really lean into What I find as the problem of the plagues in general, and we've touched on this for multiple weeks, God has, at least in this storyteller's opinion, been the one that influences Pharaoh to resist Moses. So in a sense, God has created the problem that God will now fix with this 10th plague. And although if we're, you know, cheering for God like it's a football game, then you know God's doing a good, a good job of this. But if we actually look at this from a human perspective, it's troubling that the problem that God seeks to solve is a problem he created, and the way God solves that problem is by killing innocents. That's, that's hard. And I want us to kind of play with that idea a little bit because I think it's important for us in our critical consideration of the story to be able to glean the right kinds of truth from these stories and not to be caught up in some of the details that could actually be theologically problematic. Last week, I got a good question about just kind of the setup of this entire scene. And the question was that last week it dawned on the, uh, on the person asking the question that God's initial instruction to Moses pivoted to Aaron, and then back to Moses, and whether there's significance to that. And so I understand the question to be asking. Back at the burning bush, when Moses resisted God's call to go and help free the people from Egypt, one of the things that Moses said was, I don't speak well. I can't go myself and make this happen. And God essentially says, I'm gonna send Aaron You're going to meet him out in the wilderness. Aaron will speak for you. I will give him the words to say. Early on in the plague narrative, Aaron is doing just that. Moses is there. It's kind of like Moses is hearing God. Moses whispers to Aaron. Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. But as we have gone on in the plagues, Aaron has played less and less a role in conversations with Pharaoh, and Moses has assumed that kind of leadership. To be honest with you, I don't see major significance here, except that in the arc of Moses as a character, Moses has begun to assume more and more of that leadership role. I kind of like that Moses may have... (sighs) Humility might be a little strong, but may have in some level understood that he just wasn't quite that great at this stuff, politics or negotiation or who knows, how he would have assumed. But that as he worked this out, he became more and more confident in his ability to actually have a good conversation. I think all of us in some way understand that kind of transition. We have all professionally, personally, you name it, started off doing a thing and been kind of nervous because we didn't really know what we were doing. Now we have to act the part, right? We're gonna show up and we're gonna be confident. But after doing something for years and years and years, whatever that something may be, it, it just becomes us, it becomes who we are, it becomes a capacity or a skill that we simply have honed and developed, and in a sense, it becomes our character. That is, I, I can remember, and I don't know if I've said this in here before, but as you might imagine, when priests go to seminary, we've never done things like celebrate the Eucharist, right? And so one of the things that we do, I totally did this, you get a little like bread plate and a wine glass and I put it on my ironing board and I stood in front of the mirror in my bedroom and I kind of had to go, okay, so how far do my hands go, right? And how do I, and what do I touch? You know, and you're kind of looking at the mirror and you're like, hmm, I don't like that. I kind of like this or whatever. And so, The very first time you ever get in front of people to do that is nerve-wracking because you're doing a thing that, I promise you, none of us think we are any kind of able to do this, right? I mean, when we go behind an altar for the first time, who are we? I can remember actually saying to my professor, my preaching professor, that I had trouble the first time I gave a sermon because I couldn't get out of my mind Who am I to say anything to anybody about being Christian? I mean, I know less than almost everyone else who's out in that room, right? I am almost all, at that point, you know, being in my mid-20s, I'm looking out at a room where I was definitely below the average age. And so what am I saying to these people, right? All of us in that way, whether we are working in an office place, whether we are running a household, whatever that is, we've all felt the insecurity, or felt the lack of preparation or experience. But once we commit and we start doing a thing over and over and over again, we get better, we become more confident, it becomes who we are. And my guess is that this story naturally evolves, and Moses just owns more and more of his call as a prophet. And then we will fast forward to see that once... They escape Pharaoh's army, then the Israelites go to Mount Sinai. It's Moses that goes up, and Moses who receives the commandments, and it's Aaron who messes up down at the bottom of the mountain in one of the best scenes in the whole Bible. And so we'll get there next year in 2022. Um, But regardless of that, I do see this lovely arc of Moses just becoming more and more who God called him to be, and not because he is superhuman but because he's simply been faithful. And to me, that's the good word for us, is that we are all called to do things that make us uncomfortable. And it's our faithfulness that God will not leave us alone that can give us the confidence to live into our call. I got the most fantastic email, Monday maybe, where one of our good St. Michael parishioners said, she was with one of her friends, and her friend who had not really been a churchgoer for a long time because she had just observed the very common hypocrisy between, that people often observe, you know, Christians are often not the most Christian people. Um, and so she had always found that frustrating. But then she said to this woman who is a St. Michaelite that she's decided that she actually thinks she wants to start exploring christianity because of her friendship with her that she has in a sense changed her mind that being christian could actually be a good thing and so in beautiful episcopalian sensibilities she freaked out and she said what am i supposed to say to this person um and she so she emailed me and she said can i give her a book do i pray with her do i invite her to church help and i thought That is so often how we are when God calls us in these little moments. Because that's something that, you know, being evangelical is not perhaps a charism of most Episcopalians. And yet, we have these moments where a big old door is opened wide to us. And believing that God will be faithful... If we step through, you know, if we trip through or fall through or whatever we do through that door, so long as we try, that actually God's going to help us perhaps give us the words to say, give us the way to feel or the way to reach out to that person. I think we've all been in those moments where a big door has opened. Sometimes we step through and sometimes we don't. And all of us do and do not seize moments like that throughout our lives. Here, Moses has resisted and yet been compelled, and in his what we might call faithfulness, God's actually changed him over time to become the person God knew he could be. And I think that's a really good thing for each of us. All right, so we're gonna end there with the whole how do we get here before we get to the warning of the final plague. Thoughts or questions? stage is very loud today. I'm not sure what it's doing. All right, then let's jump in. Chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 4. Chapter 11, verse 4. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as has never been or will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not a people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Leave us, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And in hot anger he left Pharaoh. I want to acknowledge—we'll pause there—we've got a little bit of an odd thing here, because if you remember at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh and Moses had a falling out, and they sort of went— boom, and they're like, I'm never going to see you again. Well, I'm not going to see you first, right? They kind of had that little moment. (laughs) Then when we get to chapter 11, it's as if they're back together again. And so if you're reading straight through, you might start chapter 11 and say, wait a minute, they just had a big moment where they're never going to see each other again, and now they're immediately talking to each other one more time. This is likely an indication to us that a story is being told that was not simply a single narrative, but instead many stories, at least two, that have been told about Moses over generations and generations and are essentially being combined into one really good story. I think I've used this example in here before. I don't want us to think that because there were multiple narratives that were combined, that this story is somehow wrong or untrue. This is very much like what happens at every nativity pageant ever. You take Matthew and you take Luke, and you put them together. Matthew tells the nativity story one way, Luke tells it a totally different way. And by totally different, I mean with the exception of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, there's really no overlap. And so the characters merge into what we do every year in a nativity pageant and it's great, and it's a good story, and who cares if there are two that we put together? Were there shepherds and wise men coming to the same place? Sure, whatever. This is one of those moments where people have been telling the story of Moses. When we get to the place where Israel leaves Egypt, we will see it is hundreds of thousands of people leave Egypt, according to the story. Well, if you fast forward hundreds of years, hundreds of thousands of people could it become well over a million? They lived all over the country of Israel in 12 different tribal areas. It is so natural to think that each tribe would have had its own version of the Exodus story. Within a single tribe, there could be multiple versions of the Exodus story. If all of us went, To tell children a very well-known story. If every one of us went to tell a child the story of Hansel and Gretel, they would all be different stories. And we would probably all tell that story in meaningfully different ways because it's how we were told. Does it matter? No. And it is not untrue. It is totally true. But it is good for us, with our critical eye, to understand that an amalgamation of stories has happened to create the one that we receive here in Exodus. And here's just one of those, I don't know, editorial misses where they had a falling out, they're never gonna see each other again, and then immediately they're back together having a conversation. Just simply a note. Any questions about that? This warning of the final plague is really meant to set the stage for the moment when Pharaoh will break. This is, in a sense, the straw that breaks the back. Up to this point, Yahweh has essentially strung Pharaoh along. We can understand that it's sort of a punch and a punch and a punch. Pharaoh has consistently hardened his resolve to resist letting the Israelites go. We have been led to this moment, and it is critically important that this moment happened not only as a 10th plague, but the way that the Israelites differentiate themselves from the Egyptians. And by that I mean what we will see over the next few chapters is not simply that the plague hits Egypt and not Goshen, or the Egyptians and not the Israelites, but that the Israelites take action to express their faithfulness to God in a very particular way that then protects them from the bad things in the world. Now, isn't that interesting? Think about that one more time. We know what's coming and we're gonna talk about it in more detail, but we know the moment when Moses creates this Passover experience, they share a meal together, they put blood over the doorposts of their homes, and all of that is to keep the angel of death from coming over them. Here in this warning moment, Moses is being very intentional to say, this is going to happen to you, not to us. Look at what he actually says, not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites. There is a fine underline here that says, not only will your firstborn die, which is a horrible thing, but not even a dog will growl at the Israelites. We will not have pain, we will not suffer, we will not lose anything. This will happen only to you, not to us. But it's not just going to be because God has chosen the Israelites. There is an expectation of reciprocation from the Israelites. And those that do not will not be passed over. This plague is going to be the moment that changes the Israelites forever sets them on a new path. And it's important to remember that the Israelites were not sold on Yahweh. We can very easily assume that the Israelites were just waiting around for someone to come and tell them Yahweh's back. That is not what happens. Consistently over and over again, the Israelites will voice objection to Moses. That's already happened in the plagues, saying, why are we not being released? Why are you causing us problems? It's going to increase when they go out into the wilderness. We, we know, looking forward, that when they're standing on the precipice, looking at the Red Sea, seeing Egypt's army coming after them, they say, what, you just brought us out here to kill us? Couldn't we have just stayed in Egypt? And then it happens again when they're in the wilderness. We are starving. Did you bring us out here just so we could starve to death? and then it happens again. We are so thirsty. Did you bring us out here so we would just die of thirst? I mean, it's over and over and over again. Israel is needing to be convinced of Yahweh's goodness. That kind of moment where the Israelites get on a new path is happening right here in these next couple chapters. There is a very clear differentiation between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and it's important for us to note that. Lastly, in this chapter, we see in verse 8 the first time Moses is described as being angry. Now, we could easily say he was obviously angry when he killed the Egyptian, right? Yeah, we can imply that for sure. Here we see that Moses left Pharaoh in hot anger. Matt, that's good, isn't it? I kind of love hot anger. I think that always feels cathartic. Here, Moses leaves Pharaoh's court mad. He is mad. Where is the anger coming from? If you put yourself in Moses' shoes, although there, we could understand, perhaps, this tenth plague as being vindication of Yahweh's threats that started all the way back before the first, Moses, in this moment, being angry, I interpret as Moses' humanity coming out. Put yourself in his position. Do you think he actually wants this to happen? I mean, it's one thing for frogs to come out of the river and die in your house and smell bad. Okay. Maybe boils, I mean, that's, that's bad. This, this is next level. Moses has received this from God and Moses has said what God said. And I like to think, and I believe you can read it this way, that Moses is the messenger, and that, in a sense, Moses has anger that it has gotten to this point. He doesn't want all these people to die. He wants Pharaoh to break. He wants the Israelites to be free. But in this moment, in a sense, Moses is like, look at what you have done. And he is so angry that it has come to this place. That's a really fine line to walk. Here's an interesting question. If Moses had refused to pass on the message of the plague, would it have happened? If Moses had not been faithful to God and to speak God's message to Pharaoh, would the innocents have died? Part of what we see in the character of Moses is a depth of faithfulness that even when faced with something horrible, there is a faithfulness that God's purposes go beyond our understanding. We have noted in here in the past that we don't have historic record of this moment. And so it's very easy if if it makes you comfortable to say this happened or this didn't actually happen. Again, it doesn't matter to me. The point for me is that we see in this one person a level of faithfulness that should inspire us, that should get under our skin in a way that kind of makes us uncomfortable. If we put ourselves in Moses' position and we were speaking a plague like this, knowing that innocents would die, would we? It's a hard place to be. Now I'll pause there before we get into third section of today's lesson. Any thoughts or questions so far? It's heavy stuff, I know. It gets worse. (laughs) No. Okay. Section three today is not necessarily going to look at the scripture specifically. I want to talk about what it means to know, and to acknowledge God. There is a brilliant example in our commentary today about the difference between knowing and acknowledging. If you, if you didn't read it, I will explain it to you because it hits home. So, our commentary t- tells the story of being pulled over for speeding, which, if you ask my children, they will tell you they have been with me in at least five states where I have been pulled over um, for speeding. Um, that is a personal weakness. Um, that's my confession to you. And so, in this story, you get pulled over for speeding. What's the thing the cop always asks? Do you know how fast you were going? And do you know what the speed limit is? Yes. I always do know both of those numbers. <laughs> and the example in the commentary today is one where I know the speed limit, but I don't acknowledge it, which is why I go too fast. In Hebrew, the word for knowing is actually one that can also be tweaked to be acknowledging, and there's a difference. You can know a thing, but you may not acknowledge it in your action. What is important here in this plague narrative, especially in this 10th plague, as Moses introduces the idea to Pharaoh, is the desire for Pharaoh to acknowledge God, not just to know God is real, not just to know that God can do some stuff, but that acknowledgement that would actually change his actions. Again, with that whole anger bit, Moses doesn't want this to happen, and yet it is Pharaoh's lack of acknowledgement of God that is really bringing upon all of his people this horrible plague. Moses desperately wants that Pharaoh go beyond the knowing to the acknowledgement. What I find very interesting here is that the same thing is happening to the Israelites. At the same time that Moses is trying to get Pharaoh to know and acknowledge Yahweh, Moses is having to get the Israelites to know and acknowledge Yahweh. As I said just a few minutes ago, Israel was not sitting around waiting for Yahweh. Yes, they knew about Joseph, they knew about Abraham, that was kind of a thing, but that was not impacting their daily life. They were working hard, they were enslaved, they were doing what the Egyptians wanted them to do. They were not somehow theologically preparing themselves for when Yahweh would return. When Moses shows up on the scene and reminds them of this thing that they kind of know, that they've heard about from a long time ago, the Israelites immediately begin to question whether this is legitimate. Moses' efforts with the Israelites have been less than his efforts with Pharaoh up to this point, but we're about to shift, and Moses is about to focus more on the Israelites than on the Egyptians. It is a very similar emphasis. Yes, the Israelites know God's doing a thing. They've seen it happen. They've seen all the different plagues up to this point, but they've not quite acknowledged through action. The first nine plagues, many of which did not impact the Israelites for no reason that they brought about of their own. So God simply just spared them. With this tenth plague, the Israelites will have to do a thing. The Israelites will have to acknowledge and take action that they go from the knowing to the acting in order for this plague to pass them over. It is an important moment for both entities to go from knowing to acknowledging. And for us, as we study, I want us to vet the idea that we often know God and do not acknowledge God. That's a real hard thing. So let's lean into that for just a minute. Pharaoh knows, will not acknowledge. The Israelites know and will be asked to acknowledge with the blood and the dinner. How often are we in a very similar position? How often do we know God, know what is right, know what is true, and yet not acknowledge in our actions that those things are true or good or right. We know, we know in our bones, in our soul, right things to do, but how often do we just not do them? Because we are busy, because it is too hard, it takes too much time, it takes too much effort, whatever the excuse, we have plenty of them. We are super, super good with the excuses. How many times do we actually put ourselves in a position of knowing better? I cannot even tell you how many times I have had that gut feeling where I'm supposed to do the thing and I don't do it. And then I look back days later and think, I knew, I knew I was supposed to do that and I just didn't do it. And occasionally, when I have trusted that, it has worked out so well, many times, and by many, I can think of at least seven explicit times, I have had a completely random thought to call a person who I'm not really close to, and I do, and I have a conversation, and that person dies within days. Now, I'm obviously living in the world a little differently than you. If you're calling people and they die regularly, that's something's wrong, but (laughs) I'm in somewhat of a different capacity, and so that might happen for me more often than normal, Um, but it has absolutely happened the opposite way, too, where I've thought of somebody, and I've been doing something, or I'm busy, or I "Ah, think I'll do that later, and then I don't because I forget, and then that person dies two days later. That has happened, too, and then on and on and on, right? It doesn't have to be quite that dramatic, but we understand The idea that we know better. We know what's right. And we are in a very technical sense, so non-judgmental, technical sense, so very self-righteous. We put ourselves in the center, not God. We put our interests in the center, not God's. It's It's a hard thing. And we're seeing that happen right here with Pharaoh and with the Israelites. Bev? Uh Question that came in. Is it possible that many of the Israelites followed the Egyptian gods? Ah, good question. So a question from online. Is it possible that many of the Israelites followed Egyptian gods? Absolutely yes. In fact, I would say that majority did. And here's why. Up to this point, the Israelites didn't really have a theology of God. If we think about the development here over time, we have the creation stories in Genesis, we've got the flood narrative with Noah, we've got Abraham being called out of Ur down into what is Israel, basically, to Canaan. Abraham receives a promise, and then he just passes on the promise. There's no real worship. There's no real theological um, development of any kind. It's just a promise. Now, it's it's kind of an interesting promise, because Abraham went to a place he was supposed to go, and then in his old age, when he hadn't had any children, was able to have a son. Okay, well, in the ancient world, that is a materially good thing. To us, it might sound like certainly nice and good, but back in the ancient world, it was absolutely critical that you have children for your own security. And so here are these elderly people, right? I mean, 90 plus year old who really should not have been able to have children had a child. That's good. That's exciting. And so they've passed on that story. But the idea that there was any sort of ritual or theology or none of that happened, which is why getting into Egypt made them very vulnerable. And so being in Egypt for hundreds of years, absolutely, they would have followed Egyptian pantheon and mythology and all those gods for sure. Remember that when they began and came to Egypt, they were guests, they received hospitality. And so isn't it kind of natural that if some people are good to you, you would be good back? And if those good people were you know, going down to the temple well, you would go with them. They seem nice, right? And so the Israelites would have had a cultural identity, more sort of ethnic or racial, but religiously, yeah, they were probably pretty close to the Egyptians. There's a reason why when we get to Mount Sinai and Moses disappears for days up on the mountain, what do they do? They build a golden calf. It's not because a cow was the best thing they could do. I mean, who had golden calves? Egyptians. And so when they were kind of out in the middle of nowhere, not knowing what was going on and wasn't sure if God was there or not, they started to panic and get a little anxious, and they went back to what they knew, and they built that golden calf. It is, I think, a certainty that the Israelites would have had some kind of Egyptian worship training that then had to be essentially remade, retaught. They had to kind of break those habits in order to create the good habits that would become Judaism. I just just to reiterate, <clears throat> at this point in the story, there are no Jewish people. They are not Jewish. They are Israelites. Judaism does not start until after they leave and Moses receives the commandments. That's when Judaism begins. And so we are not talking about Jewish people in Egypt here. We're talking about Israelites in Egypt. So Judaism is essentially what is created out of the remaking of whatever kind of weird Egyptian mess that the Israelites would have absorbed in their centuries in Egypt. Good question. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, okay, so observation would be that the Israelites spent far too long with the Egyptians to resist intermarrying. So they would have intermarried, I think that's probably very true. Then, would Egyptian religiosity have influenced or impacted what ultimately was Jewish? Yes? Um, Let's take the first, to just simply acknowledge that the intermarrying would have almost certainly happened. Um, I can't think of quite an explicit example of it. Although we do get, well, hold on, we do get later on with the kings, judges. Eh, really, it's in the judges section um, before the kingdom period, where we do seem to have some. I would, I would say, probably explicit, not just implicit, indications that some of the rulers and the judges had lineage that went back to Egypt. And so I think if we were to draw those kinds of lines, even though you're talking about generations and generations later, that certainly there is an acknowledgement that Egyptian, I hate to say Egyptian blood, but basically has kind of gotten into the Israelite community. Um, I think that Egyptian religiosity had to be remade, and um, what's my word? Almost repurposed within Judaism. I think we talked about it here a little bit. Christians have done this very successfully. Christians may have been the best at taking pagan tribal stuff and repurposing it, Um, depending on wherever you go around the world. I mean, we just, right now, Um, What is Dia de Muertas? I mean, that is, the Day of the Dead was something that predated Christianity, but Christians showed up and they were like, oh, that kind of sounds like All Souls. Okay, did you know All Saints and All Souls used to be celebrated in March? And then when Christians got to both the Celtic region of Britain and also that kind of Latin American region later on, they took two different ideas, okay, hold on. Dios de las Muertas is one of them, but then the other one is something something hulu. There was a oh sorry, I'm gonna have to look this up. There was a, an old Celtic whatever, kind of seasonal celebration that was had some kind of Hulu sounding name. And so the Christians, when they went to Britain, merged what was All Saints and All Souls with whatever this celebration that the Celtics had around death and dying and put them together. And so All Hallows' Eve became Halloween that was subs- uh, kind of assumed into Christian so that you get this three-day festival, right, where you've got Halloween, all saints, all souls, boom, boom, boom. They actually shifted the celebration of all saints to the fall from the spring in order to capitalize on this celebration that was already within this pagan culture so that over the course of a couple generations, they kind of forgot the old celebrations and they took on the new celebrations and kind of just became Christian in the process. That's how we have evergreen Christmas trees. That was a German thing. I mean, you know, you can go on and on and on. So I think there are certainly examples of the way in which Egyptian identity, theology, religiosity impacted what would ultimately become Jewish. Hmm. it I don't know. That doesn't sound right. Salween, that's it. Salween, thank you. It was Salway. It was the festival of Salway. And then it became Salween, which then became Halloween. Like that's kind of was the thank you, Salway. Um, that was the Celtic celebration. So back to the Jews. I do not know enough to make this statement. But I will tell you that just off the top of my head, much of the way that Jews end up representing their religion looked like many other ancient groups. You had a temple and you had sacrifice. And the way in which all that happened was in the very technical sense not that different than the way other traditions around the ancient world had temples with sacrifices there was a unique development that we have often considered monotheistic within the Jewish tradition, that there was a single God. That's the unusual thing about Judaism. The way that that worship was expressed was very similar to what was going on in other places. And so I don't know if scholars would potentially say that that kind of Influence from Egypt and other places would have provided the blueprint for the way in which Jews worshipped. Theologically speaking, there was a shift, but the practicality of going to a place to sacrifice and God being present in a space, that's pretty common all over the ancient world. Christianity took that and flipped it a bit. The sense that God is not in a place but that God was in a person, and then God through a person became present in us, that's a big shift. Now granted, Rome got a hold of Christianity and then began to formalize it and make it more corporate in its practice than it had been for the first few hundred years. But theologically speaking, Christianity made another shift away from place to more person. And so there are these steps moving forward. But even in the East, there are examples. um, Monotheism, as expressed in the Jewish tradition, is not fully unlike the idea we see in Hinduism, that is, even though there are lots of gods, there is still just It depends on the way in which you understand the world. This idea of Brahman, which is God is everything and everywhere, is not so dissimilar to the way that the Jews ultimately understood God's presence in all places. Um, There are certain very important distinctions, so it's not the same thing, but Judaism is simply, I think, an evolution of what was going on in the world at the time. And so I think that necessarily means it was influenced in meaningful ways. I just can't give you some of the specifics. Any other questions or thoughts? All right. We'll end today by talking about the way in which this story has been important to the Jewish people through time. What we are about to do next week the next few weeks, is immerse ourselves in what is arguably the most important single moment for Jews, period. When God comes and triumphs over Egypt to release the Jews, the Israelites, from captivity, that single experience has been the root of Jewish hopefulness forever. That is where Jews place their faith in Yahweh. And I think we all know that over the, century, over the millennia, the Jewish people have had their share of trials and tribulations and painful experiences and loss, captivity and control, you name it. Every time those things happen, This is the moment that they root themselves back to. The reason that the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the Seder, all of those things become the way in which Jews practice regularly is because this moment defines who they know themselves to be for the rest of history. They are God's chosen, in a sense, they are God's firstborn, And their chosenness means that God will be faithful to them. Maybe not exactly today the way they wish, but just like the Israelites who spent captivity, hundreds of years in captivity in Egypt, deliverance will happen. Deliverance will come. Salvation will come. And so over and over and over again, whether it was Assyria, Babylon, Persia, you name it, ultimately Rome, Germany, whatever you want to say, in all of those horrible experiences, what we are about to do in the next couple weeks is the root that held them connected faithfully to Yahweh over and over and over again. And I want to just plant that seed because we as Christians do not really understand the plight of captivity. Not really. Intellectually, of course. But as a people, pretty much, if we are kind of North African, Western European, eh, whatever, Christians, we've not really, in our history, experienced the kind of captivity that the Jewish people have. There are places around the world where Christians are persecuted, for sure. We are not one of those places. And I would venture a guess that most of us have not in our own family histories experienced religious persecution and captivity. Now, I say that to also then acknowledge that we in this country, in Europe, and other places, have held captive other peoples, but it is not because of their Christianity. In fact, we have plenty of stories where people in captivity adopted the faith of their captors and did it better. And so for us, we've got an interesting opportunity to vet personally what is actually happening for the Jewish people in, as they reflect on this moment in time. Because remember, this is being written in exile in Babylon. They are in captivity, writing about a time when they were in captivity and when God delivered them from it. And so they are telling themselves the story of their history in order to make sure that they keep the hope alive that the pain and the suffering they are experiencing in that moment when this was written will not last forever. And it is not an accident that the prophetic tradition that surrounds the exile, either pre, during, or post-exile, really glams on to this idea of God saving them from the pain and the suffering of their captivity, And predicting that God's salvation, God's saving effort, will in a sense ratchet itself up and be even better than what the Exodus was. That idea becomes Messiah, and that idea of God saving us even better than God saved the Israelites out of Egypt is the foundation upon which the early followers of Jesus begin to define his role. And so we inherited what is essentially the exodus writ large. Jesus becomes the person who saves us, not just from the pain of this world, but from pain, period. When the early Christians begin to define Jesus as overcoming death itself, Now we're not talking about you no longer have to make bricks and you no longer have to be slaves in this world. Now we're talking about we are no longer bound to this world at all. That becomes the big next step. And we can understand really the root of that entire system of thinking over these next couple weeks as we come to the Passover and the final plague. And so with that, we'll pause today And just a reminder that we've got a couple more weeks, but that the week of Thanksgiving, which is November 24th, that Wednesday, we will not have class. And so I know you really want to come the day before Thanksgiving. Do not. We will not be here. Um, But we will pick it up after Thanksgiving Day. So we've got a couple more weeks before Thanksgiving, and then we'll finish up this first section of the Exodus um, in December before Christmas. I thank you all very much. I'll see you next week.